Hello, I am Zelda Volkov and you are listening to the Oh My God podcast. This is a space where honest conversation and raw interaction takes place. In these 25 minutes, I interview badass trailblazers and industry leaders about the things that they had to overcome to achieve success. The challenges that they faced as human beings first and as industry leaders second leaving you with actionable techniques and takeaways to implement into your life immediately, taking you from where you are right now to where you want to go. In this week's episode, Zelda interviews Mark Taffet. If you're a boxing fan, chances are high that you know his name. Mark is the brains behind pay-per-view television and was the senior vice president of sports operations and pay-per-view for HBO for 25 years. He's now the president of Mark Taffet Media, where he produces pay-per-view events that have generated over $3 billion in revenue. He's thoughtful, gives incredible advice, and gave a fantastic interview. We hope you enjoy this very special episode. Now, over to Zelda. Mark, thank you for doing this conversation with me. I'm really excited for our listeners to hear about your story, your journey, Um, It's quite remarkable for everything that I've been reading about you. So if you could take us back a little bit from where you began, where your interest in boxing came from. Yeah, I'm going to take you a long way back. I'm 63, and I'm probably going to take you back about 58 years. I grew up in a uh, lower middle income household in a development where there were 400 homes built and virtually everybody came out of World War II, moved there, got one of those very cheap mortgages for those then $11,000 homes. And everybody had two or three kids. And we had our own neighborhood of sports leagues with all the kids that, that lived there. It was, a, it was like the wonder years. It was a phenomenal place to grow up. You know, you woke up in the morning, went out at eight o'clock in the morning, you came back eight o'clock at night. It was the American dream. Very different than not only, of course, the COVID circumstances of the of immediate presence, but uh, even you know, five, 10 years ago, very different than kids grow up today. My f- mother and father were both very hard workers. My father worked in the restaurant business. He worked six days a week. He was off on Monday. I saw him Monday afternoon from four o'clock to eight o'clock when I got home from school and until the time I had to do my homework. My dad was a huge sports fan. He and I used to watch boxing events. So I always tell people I wasn't a big fan of boxing. I was a fan of big boxing. We grew up watching ABC Wide World of Sports and Howard Cosell. I remember the um, Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali fights, you know, coming out of the Olympics and 64, and then his professional years when he turned pro. And we, we loved it. My father and I went to, you know, Yankee games and New York Giants football games at the old stadiums. I was 11, 12 years old when the Mets won the World Series in 1969, when the Jets with Joe Namath won the Super Bowl in 68, and when the Knicks with Willis Reed, David Busher, Bill Bradley, Walt Frazier, Dick Barnett and Earl Monroe won those championships in 69 and then in 73. That changed my life and shaped my life. And I became a huge sports fan. I used to be forced to go to sleep 7.30, 8 o'clock at night as a kid. I would put the radio under my pillow and listen to Marv Albert call those Nick games. It was like uh, poetry and romance for me. You know, it was the biggest thing in my life. So flash forward, as a kid, when I was five years old, I worked in my grandfather's luncheonette with my father. I used to stand on cartons and crates and 
scoop out ice cream cones for a nickel a piece for the customers, put on my apron. And that's the way I saw my dad. I saw my dad basically by working with him as a little kid. And then as I got into my school years, even uh, in grade school, working with him on weekends and going in 4 35 o'clock in the morning into the basement of those restaurants. In those restaurants, I would prep food for hours before they opened. And I worked basically with people from every uh, religion, race, creed, ethnicity, color imaginable. Um, and that's really where I learned how to listen because I didn't speak the same language as many of those people I worked with in those restaurant kitchens and, and prep centers in the basements. But uh, I had to get along with them. I had to work with them. I had to understand them. We had to communicate. And I learned a lot of life's lessons in those restaurants growing up as a kid. You flash forward, I went to Rutgers University, economics major, was very fortunate to get admitted to the Wharton Business School in Philadelphia. Immediately following my undergraduate education, I went straight through only about three or 4% of the students in that graduating class did then. And then I got my first job at General Foods, where I worked in the Bird's Eye Frozen Foods Division. While I was there, I worked in a new business development group. I was the finance guy making the, the, mark, the business plans with the marketing person and the operations person. Once a quarter, all of the young financial analysts would meet with the controllers of all the different divisions of the General Foods Company and make presentations of our project. It was a pretty much a nameless, faceless room of a few hundred people, but I stood up and did my presentations on my business plans. Two years later, while I was getting very bored of General Foods. It was way too structured for me and not enough entrepreneurial advancement opportunities, even in a corporate environment. I got a phone call from a guy named Andy Kaplan. He said, hey, Mark, I was an assistant controller at General Foods, a different division than you worked in, but I saw your presentations and I took note of what you, what you did and what you said. I work at this new company called HBO. We're sort of just starting out, but we think it's a great growth business. And we've got all these hotshot uh, MBAs from Ivy League schools coming over here. And I'd love you to come over here. So I went with Andy Kaplan, met him, interviewed with him, and got a job as an accountant at HBO, closing the books for the sales and marketing department. Now, mind you, I took accounting in school, but I had never done accounting. And uh, I didn't know debits from credits, but the Harvard MBA who hired me said, just take the job. Every month things change here. We're just looking for you know, bright, young, energetic people with a, with a vision to advance in the future and grow at this company. So that's how I got to HBO. I worked for seven years at HBO in the finance department, working my way up eventually to vice president of financial planning. And I worked with every division of the company. And at the time, uh, the CFO of the company was a young man named Jeffrey Bucus. Jeff Bucus became my rabbi within HBO. Jeff ultimately became not only president and CEO of HBO, but eventually the CEO of the entire Time Warner Corporation. He put, sent me around to every division and said, we're growing like crazy. They all have to learn financial accountability and profitability, develop business models for them to help make their decisions better. And eventually it's gonna turn into a position and I'm gonna get you out into an operating job. And I, I met with the then president of HBO Sports, Seth Abraham, where Seth said, you know something, Mark, we got this young kid named Mike Tyson. This was back in 1988, 1989. He said, our deal's about to expire with him. We're paying him about $3 million a fight, and we don't, we're not sure what to do or how to structure it. Let me know what you think. 
So I did a study of the boxing business. And what I realized was that in six cities across America, there were these microwave dish antennas on people's rooftops. And when Ray Leonard did some of his fights then, those people in those six cities would buy those fights on a transactional basis for the night. Most other people would watch their big, big boxing by going out to closed circuit venues, which then were stadiums and arenas, not sports bars and restaurants, where the picture was terrible, the sound was terrible, people were throwing uh, popcorn and beer and soda all over each other. It was a terrible experience, but it was the way to see big fights. Uh, so I did a study for Seth and I said, you know, in these six cities where these dishes are on top of antennas are on top of people's rooftops, there's more revenue being generated than you're paying nationally for rights. So I wrote a business plan for what we called pay-per-view and said, if we don't get into this business and grow it as that other business grows through those other entities, we're going to lose our boxing franchise. Boxing back then was the number two franchise for HBO subscribers. Right behind movies, men, heads of household, had HBO and kept it because of the boxing. So the business plan got approved and they turned to me and said, you want to run this? And Jeff Bucus said, I told you this would happen. Go do it. And that's how we formed HBO Pay-Per-View. That's how it started. I launched the business in 1991 with uh, Vander Holyfield against George Foreman for the World Heavyweight Championship, Dan Duvin, Bob Arum as promoters. That's how HBO Pay-Per-View started. That's incredible. So, yeah, crazy story. Yeah, really incredible. What challenges personally do you feel like you had to overcome in order to, mm. to get there? Well, very quickly, I had to get over fear and anxiety. Um, and, and I had about 24 hours to get over it because we bought the Holyfield Foreman fight for a record license fee. We had never paid more than $3 million for a Mike Tyson fight, and we paid about $30 million for pay-per-view rights to Holyfield Foreman, not having any idea how much it would generate on pay-per-view. Wow. It was a roll of the dice, a hell of a risk, but the people at uh, Time Warner said, we want to launch, we want to get out there, and we want to be the biggest player in the business, so go get it. And uh, Seth said, let's go pay that for that fight. So I then realized that I needed to generate a heck of a lot of revenue quickly to make this business work. So I went out to, um, you know, the other challenge I faced was I started to study what distribution would be available for pay-per-view. And as I talked to cable operators, what I found out quickly, unfortunately, was that the, uh, there was no revenue coming through the boxes that were necessary for pay-per-view. The way you got HBO and Showtime back in those days was through what was called a trap. It was a little device that was on the top of a telephone pole. The cable installers would climb the poles and either put the trap in to stop the signal from going through or put the trap in to open the signal to allow the pay TV signals to go through. But there was no box and they had to have boxes in the homes for pay-per-view. The way you would get a pay-per-view event with this box, they had boxes for about five to 10% of the subscribers. You would go on a Friday night, pay a $50 deposit, get the box, bring it back Monday morning, get your $50 back, and then separately pay a fee for the programming. So I said, oh my God, you're telling me that we can only accommodate a few people per cable system? They said, yeah. So I went back to New York and said, we got a problem. Major business challenge and major creativity challenge. I remember, mind you, I was a financial guy doing financial plans, financial analysis. Now I was running a business. And um, I'd never run a business before. I had worked in luncheonettes with my parents, but I never ran a business. So I had a lot to learn and a lot to overcome. So I said, I got over the fear and the anxiety. 
And then I said, you know what, Mark, you better own this. You better get out there. You better pretend you own it. And then you better in your own mind, actually own this thing and make it work. So I started visiting the cable operators and said, what's it going to take for us to grow the number of boxes that you put in people's homes very quickly? Because in four months or five months, we have a pay-per-view fight. Hitting. We need to do a lot of business. We paid $30 million for this fight. And I found out very quickly that if we delivered programming on a regular basis, they would make a significant investment in the boxes. So I went back to Time Warner, went to very senior people quickly to negotiate and get permission to launch one pay-per-view fight every month for a minimum of two years, two-year commitment. Went out to the distributors and they said, okay, by the time we did our very first fight, April 19th, 1991, we had grown from about 3 million boxes to about 16 to 18 million boxes around the country. So at least we now had the capability to do over 1 million buys of a reasonable percentage of those people bought the fight. And now we had, you know, the distribution platform. And I learned very quickly that without distribution, you got nothing. Um, I also learned something else very quickly, which was while I was out negotiating, I learned about the concept of leverage. They had the leverage when I needed the boxes. But once they committed to putting boxes in because I was delivering programming, I now learned that programmers had a lot of leverage if they chose to exercise it. So I went to the distributors and said, oh, by the way, we'll deliver this programming, but we want to get the best Saturday nights, the best time slot on a Saturday night. I need preferential treatment so that I can then go out to promoters and fighters and say, hey, we got the best screen in the movie theater, so to speak, and you have to commit your fights to us to deliver on pay-per-view to the cable systems. But I'm gonna, if you do that, we'll get Saturday night, nine o'clock, the best Saturday nights when there's the least amount of competitive programming on. And it worked. The cable operators all said, no problem, you can have those nights. So those were some very, very early challenges that we had to address and overcome. And I had to address with really no prior knowledge about how to address it. Right. I know that a lot of the people in my circle, the challenges that they face in business or in their careers, is always a reflection of what they're facing personally in their life, you know, emotionally or, you know, the different mm -hmm. limitations, limited beliefs, you know, you kind of jumped so fast. What? Like Halloween. Huh? It was like Halloween for yeah. me. I was putting on a costume and going to work. Right. Yeah. And then it, you, I guess fake it till you make it. And then it, it became, yeah. became who yeah. you are. Well, so um, I was really, really fortunate to have married a woman whose vision for what I ought to do in the future was probably even bigger than my own vision. And I always say she believed in me before I believed in myself. And she said, look, this is why you went to the library every night and studied for six hours in college. This is why you worked so hard and studied so hard to get good scores on your GMATs to get into Wharton. And this is why you worked so hard at Wharton. Go for it. Do it. No issues. No restraints. No she, she put nothing on my shoulders while I was launching that business. It enabled me, first of all, it, it motivated me and inspired me um, because I actually felt if she had that much confidence in me, I better get out there and deliver. Right. Um, so there was a, a, there, there was a freedom uh, to go create and succeed that was important. Um, and there was also a mandate, and I knew I had a lot of responsibility to deliver you know, back home, not just in the office. And I used to always tell people when they said, define your job. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to generate as much uh, income and wealth for my family as I can. 
that's how I always define my job. And if a job didn't have those capabilities and parameters, you know, it didn't have to be immediate, but it had to be that I could see it on the horizon, then it didn't fit my definition of what the job was, you know, the, what the opportunity needed to be. Um, so, you know, with that and those words from my wife, I was able to really go. And I was working 21 hours a day for two, three years. Uh, I had tremendous amount of energy. My parents both worked in restaurants. They were up at four in the morning, working until eight, nine at night. They were very, very hard workers, and they instilled that in me as a kid. Um, so hard work was not going to be the issue, and energy was not going to be the issue. Uh, overcoming those early fears, you know, helped. And uh, now I use the breadth of my background educationally and what I did learn with, you know, people skills and management skills working in those restaurants as a kid. I actually applied it to my work uh, at HBO. I also have to say, uh, Seth Abraham was the president of HBO Sports at the time, and Michael Fuchs, who was the CEO of HBO at the time, they were incredible. They said, do not fear failure. You will fail at times, you will stumble, you will fall, we don't care. You just keep looking up, getting up, and you know, run forest, run. Um, and you, know, you don't have to come back to us every time you think something might be an issue. Solve it, fix it, and go. They really knew me better than I did. They knew when they chose me to come into that division that I had the capabilities to do all of those things, even before I had the confidence to know I could do it. Um, but it was folks like that, managers like that, that, that gave me uh, complete freedom, uh, just like I had, was given at home, to go do the job and to accomplish. And you know, those two situations and the people in both of those situations is really what enabled me to develop at supersonic speed as a person, as a business person, uh, as a leader, as a manager, and, um, and then to grow this business and this category to what became you know, incredible levels. When I was there for 25 years, and we generated $3.5 billion of revenue on pay-per-view fights, made a lot of money for a lot of fighters and promoters and for uh, the, the company I worked for, for HBO. And uh, it was just magnificent, magnificent experience. But it started with those situations at home and at work with people who said, go do it, go get it, go realize your dreams. Um, and it also it was having a mentor at HBO early on in, in Jeff Bukas, who, um, you know, it's important to have a mentor at work. It's important to have somebody who teaches you, motivates you, inspires you, and says, you know, you do it right, and we're going to open some doors. If you have somebody like that, and you then go and uh, you do your job right, and those doors open, it makes all the difference in the world. Definitely really lucked out with your wife. That's incredible. That's beautiful. Really amazing. What well, are... she, cho she chose me first. So uh, all I had to do was say yes. Wow. That's beautiful. You know, what would be some, like, actionable tips or tools that you would be able to, you know, give people that are listening to this if they're struggling um, in their, their careers or yeah. you know, in their lives? Sure, I've thought a lot about that and spoken to a lot of students about that actually over the years. So the first thing is when you're looking for a job or a career, you have to think of it as a tree. You want a tree with a very strong root in the ground and a very strong trunk. The roots are the company and the strong trunk is the company and the first job you acquire. From there, you need a tree that has as many branches as possible because no one, knows where they're going 
or how they're going to get there. They think they do. They may say they do, but they're fooling themselves. As much as you would like your, your ego would like to say, yep, it's because you knew and you found it and you fulfilled it. A lot of times it's circumstances and opportunities that come to fruition. Nobody enters as president when they're you know, 22 to 26 to 30 years old. You start at the bottom or maybe somewhere in the mid to bottom. And so what you need is a company where the job offers you as much exposure to possible to people throughout the company in different divisions, different functional areas. You need the ability to, uh, to express yourself orally, not just via email, um, meetings and opportunities to meet with people and mix are important. Those are the places where you get to not just develop your skills, but show your skills to others. So you learn as you meet with people in all those areas of a company, what jobs and what areas, functional areas you might enjoy most and be best at. You also learn different skills by having projects that enable you to work with those different functional areas. And you uh, get to present yourself to see more senior managers who are making the hiring decisions. And they're the ones who will pick you out of those jo of jobs that you're in and say, here's an opportunity. So you should never take a job or if you're in a job, stay at a job that doesn't have a tree with a lot of branches. The second thing is you need to make sure you take advantage of all those things. I went to lunch every day with a different person in the company. Um, I went, I, my job also at HBO allowed me to meet people outside of the company. And I, I made the most of that. I, I was running around to meet as many people as I could in the projects that I was pursuing. That's what's very, very important in order for you to realize your dreams. Uh, it made all the difference in the world for me in my early years and in and middle years at HBO before I reached you know, the, the, the level that uh, enabled me to run a significant business. The other very important thing is I learned early on from some senior people about uh, what's called, what I call the hockey stick theory of compensation. So, you know, let's think in your mind of an x-axis and a y-axis. The x-axis is the blade of the hockey stick, which moves up slowly, but goes for a long distance. That's time. The y-axis is compensation. Let's call that the stick uh, or the handle of the hockey stick. What happens in, in, in most jobs is for a number of years early on, you get small raises, you move up with small raises, and then all of a sudden you hit that bottom of the stick, the handle, where a certain promotion or opportunity comes and you reach a certain level. And then in a very short number of years, your compensation can double, triple, quadruple, or more. And I always tell people, don't ever let those early years that feel like they might be forever bother you, depress you, or slow you down. As long as you're in a company that's got a lot of branches, and as long as you're in a place where you see that people can make it to levels of responsibility and authority, your compensation, once it starts to go up that stick, will grow so much faster than the early years, it'll make up for anything you left on the table in your mind in those early years. Now, it's not to say that everybody's going to get to move up that stick, but if you make it and you do it right, at least be someplace where you know that that theory is going to be fulfilled. And those are the things you look for. Right. So you want to be able to have a vision and that you feel like you're in the right place to be able to ascend. Yes. And the reason those branches are so important is because along the way, if you see that companies change their minds and they're not going to pursue a certain path or a certain business, or you're not moving anymore at the pace that you want. All of those contacts within the company and outside of the company 
because of the type of job and environment that, that, that you were in, they will enable you to have, to have networked or be able to network because it, at that point, when you get a job, it's people who know you, people who recognize you, and, and people who recognize your, your, your ability and potential. And it's the ability to talk to all of those people and not be limited to just a small number of contacts you know, or a blind uh, resume circulation, because those are the hardest ways to get ahead and find good jobs or good careers, more importantly. So like pursuing those like social, those connections and networking. Hugely important. In many times, at least as important as the job is finding, making, and uh, expanding all of those other connections and contacts. It's everything. Thank you for that. This has been this has been really inspiring to me. You know, for sure, it's definitely going to be inspiring to everybody that that's going to be listening to this. Um, any any words that you want to share? I was fortunate when I was at Wharton. One of my goals was to work in a larger corporation with a lot of resources but in one which was in a fast growing environment and which rewarded entrepreneurship within the company. HBO was absolutely perfect for that. What was really fascinating was I went through four different generations of fighters, six different generations of consumer technology, five different generations of industry technology. And what I mean by that is, as fighters, I started working with heavyweights, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Evander Holyfield, Riddick Bowe. Then they fell off. The next generation had to be found, discovered, and developed. Oscar De La Hoya, Felix Trinidad. Then the next generation, Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao. And I learned that I had to always be ahead of that curve on the, on the product front, on the programming front. Because uh, if you didn't always have, as one generation was growing, another generation coming up behind them to have a seamless transition, you would hit a point in your programming cycle where you'd be very vulnerable to competition because you didn't have the next generation ready to go. On the technology side, I learned to be, I had to be ahead of, as we went from cable to the onset of, uh, of dishes, direct TV and dish network to you know, satellite capability, to then uh, telephone capability through uh, AT&T, Verizon, and others, and eventually to the internet and then to over the top as we have today in streaming. If you don't constantly stay ahead of the technology curve, technological changes will put you out of business and have someone overcome your leadership position. If you don't know the consumer technology world of how big screens, large screens came into play, and how um, uh, sound systems and changes in sound came to play and how, and how uh, you went from analog to digital cable systems and uh, all of that presented tremendous opportunities in the production and delivery of your product to consumers. If you weren't ahead of that uh, growth, you would lose to somebody else whose consumer technology would overcome yours and make a better product. And I learned along the way, you know, it's always, you know, people always say, don't sit on your laurels and be content. But you have to know there are five or six attributes to your business, programming, technology, consumer technology, marketing, publicity, uh, the onset of digital and social media. And if you weren't ahead of all those and, and transitioning your business, I always say I was in 20 different businesses. They changed on all those different levels. And every time they changed, it became a new business. And if you didn't see that, perceive it and stay ahead of it, you'd be taken over. Very, very uh, unique that someone like I did got into a business, stayed on top for 25 years 
when at every one of those levels and in all those different areas of your business, people were constantly shooting at the perch to take over and be leaders. The only reason we stayed on top and, and, were, and were the best for a quarter century was because we were ahead of the curve on all those elements. You've got to constantly seek change, accept it, and know that it is 100% going to be part of your business or you're going to be unseated along the way by a competitor. Wow, thank you. That's a real story of um, growth and success in a very you know, practical, relatable way. I, I mm-hmm. really appreciate this conversation. Thank you so yeah. much, Mark, for, for coming Great. on and talking with me. Thank you. Thank My you. pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Oh My God with Zelda Volkov. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure to leave a review, share it with your friends, and subscribe so that you don't miss next week's episode. Tune in next week for another interview with another badass boss.